Welcome to The Road Untraveled. I'm your host, Brian Hollins, and today we have a special guest in Mercedes-Benz partner at Lightspeed Venture Partners. Mercedes has an impressive background as an operator turned investor, and we talk about her experience investing in edtech and a variety of other industries, some trends she's excited about, as well as how to think about your personal brand, uh, something I've watched her do a tremendous job building over, over the past couple of years since she joined Lightspeed. I want to give a shout out to the team at Square for their continued support of our mission. If you haven't checked out the Cash app, make sure you do. It's a phenomenal app, and I switched over from Venmo a while ago and really love it. Uh, but for now, enjoy this episode with Mercedes Bent. This is The Road Untraveled. Hey, Mercedes, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Super excited to have you. For everyone joining us, Mercedes Bent, partner at Lightspeed Venture Partners. Mercedes, why don't you just start off by giving us a little bit of who you are and, and where you come from? Yeah, my background, I was born in North Carolina in Durham and come from a family that is half from the South and half um, from the Caribbean. And we got started, you know, early on, I was introduced to technology. My my parents both were entrepreneurs, both worked in tech. We were in Durham because my dad was working for IBM and their Research Triangle Center. And I started getting introduced to the idea of tech really early at every dinner conversation and table, it would be around you know, let's talk about the next idea. Let's talk about what the next Furby is going to be or how we would do a business model for online content streaming or and all these things. So I thought that was really normal. And it wasn't until, you know, kind of high school that I started realizing, oh, not everybody's families are talking about ideas at the the dinner table every every night. So I was really thankful for that upbringing. My, my dad taught me some VBA early on, and I thought I was going to be an engineer. So I actually applied to college as a computer science major. Very quickly found out when I was at Harvard that I was not that good at computer science. So I switched over to economics. And for the first part of my career, I was in kind of corporate finance economics field. I had studied behavioral economics in college, found that part fascinating, worked at the Fed in 09, working on the housing crisis and using some of that behavioral science to kind of figure out what happened there. Went on to work at Goldman, was there for a couple of years, and then switched over to the operator side in 2012. And for me, it was kind of coming back home to work in tech and starting to work in startups again because of that experience growing up. And so I spent the next six years working at a couple of venture-backed startups. General Assembly was one of them. Another one was a virtual reality startup. And then after that was when I started getting into venture. So my background is kind of a mix of, you know, part tech, part Southern, part, you know, startup ecosystem. I love it. Let's talk a little bit about just kind of starting your operating experience. You're a VR startup, you're a GM at, at General Assembly. What, what did you learn in the operating side about building companies that, that you sort of look to now, now as an investor? I think one of the biggest things you learn is just how difficult it is to get anything off the ground. You know, people talk about that zero to one phase and then there's the scaling phase. And I worked at startups that were both zero to one. I actually started my own consulting company and that zero to one where there's nobody else there, you're trying to get just your email account set up, your website set up, you know, that's a really hard pro- uh, period before you have product market fit. And I worked, the VR startup I worked at was also pre-product market fit. And just the grind you go through trying to search for a solution that hits is one whole difficult journey. And then once it does actually hit and it starts growing super fast, then you're thinking the whole time, 
wow, this thing is growing way too fast and there's no way we're ever going to be able to deliver on our promise. And that scaling phase, which I also worked at venture back startups, like when I joined GA, they were just starting out around that phase with their education product. They had just started testing and it was taking off and, and you're just constantly worried that you're failing and not serving the, the customer. And so I'd be on the, you know, customer support chats at like 3 a.m., 4 a.m., trying to answer every last student who otherwise you just realize there's no one else to do the job. You're, they're not going to get a response if you're not up at 3.30 a.m. doing this. And so it gave me a lot of empathy for, for what founders and teams are going through. And then that's the most important thing. But the second thing it also gives you is kind of a sense and a roadmap when you first get into board meetings as a VC. You know, my first few board meetings, I kind of wonder like, what are we going to talk about and where is this going to go? And I was really nervous that I wouldn't maybe have anything of value to add. But very quickly, when they started talking about some of their problems, I was like, oh, that problem's familiar. They're talking about goal setting or they're talking about organizational structure. And, you know, I you can just pull so many tidbits and stories from, well, this is probably going to happen because this group is going to feel like this and this group is going to feel like this. Was what you need to do is get them on the same page ahead of time. And, and those stories are so universal company to company. So I think that second part is it's really helped me be a, a better board member. That's fantastic. You've had a chance not only to build your own company, but to you know sit underneath of some fantastic CEOs. Talk a little bit about some of the qualities you look for in founders now as an investor and, and some of the things that you think really matter in terms of being able to scale a business and build culture. That's a really great question. So one of the, the first people I worked for was Jake Schwartz, who was the CEO at General Assembly. And one of the things that he was really good at was triaging whatever part of the business needed the most attention. He was such a deeply integrated team member of that team for the point that they needed that help. And so it was really helpful to see that within a startup or a company, really the what gets fixed is where the CEO turns his or her attention. And so this is something I also look for now when I'm as, as an investor, it's a little bit harder to see pre-investment, whether this is the type of thing that they'll jump in and do. But really what I'm looking for is understanding, do they have a good sense of what are the challenges that need to be overcome? And also the strategy and vision of where the company is going, really what matters most. Because a lot of times you'll find that sometimes things are going well or things are not going well. But I actually don't care if things are going well or not going well. I really care if the founder CEO understands why and is able to really deeply go into how they're solving it. Because that just shows a familiarity with the business that I know as an operator works really well. I'd say the another thing I look for is founder market fit or founder product fit, which is just the idea that out of anyone you could have imagined starting this business, like this is a person who has to start this company. And I think that is really important because it's what keeps people going for years and years and years after they start the business. I mean, I've been around a lot of CEOs who are on their 10th, 11th year of running their business. And believe me, they're all tired and they all kind of want to quit. And so, you know, that initial drive of what made you want to start the company has to be so deeply ingrained that it pushes your stamina forward for many more years than the average person. I want to double click on that a little bit because I think that's super interesting. Like, do you think it matters that I worked in the space that I am building in? Do you think it matters that I have a pain point within the space that I'm building in? Like, talk a little bit about that founder market fit. 
So I think it depends. With enterprise companies, more often the founder is going to have worked in the industry and is going to have direct career experience. With consumer companies, it's all over the map. I would say founder market fit could have been something that was a hobby on the side. It could have been something that was in their family background. So they had exposure to the topic early on growing up, but haven't touched it in 10 years or 15 years. So there's a lot of different ways it can come out for a consumer. I think that also the consumer founder could have an insight about something like something as simple as storytelling. You know, we always talk about how Evan at Snapchat had really, really great insights about how he wanted stories to be told. And that's what got Lightspeed excited about the company. But that's not necessarily something that was in like his career experience or background. I mean, he was in college. But I think that's one of those things where someone can have great skill set around something and that can be part of the founder product or founder market fit. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, a quick quote that I loved when, when I was looking through your bio is, uh, the only constant in startups is change and adapting to this requires constant reskilling, particularly at the founder level. We've certainly had some change in, in the last year in, in terms of what COVID and the pandemic has done to businesses. So I'm curious if there's any resiliency skills or traits that you've seen in founders that you're particularly admirable of or, or, or things that you think are important for founders to have going forward when new change might introduce itself. I think the most important thing is that founders have a method and a way to learn, constantly learn and absorb new information. They don't necessarily have to be aware of it, but they have to be really good at learning and they have to be able to scale themselves faster than the business is scaling. And that's the only way that you're able to stay abreast of all of your new responsibilities. Every time the business takes a step change from that kind of what we were talking about, you know, the early searching for product market fit to now having found it and scaling to now being a mature business and starting there's you know then IPOing and and so on and so on there's a step function of responsibilities at every change and if the CEO can't keep up with that change then they're going to unfortunately be probably replaced down the line so i think that founders i call them learning animals like founders who have figured out how to learn extremely fast for whatever they need to are the ones that I get really excited about. And typically what those founders have in common, I wrote a post um, called Founders Are Born Not Made and How Founders Become Learning Animals. And some of the commonalities that we see is that a lot of the founders who are able to do this have these peer group of founders, like a founder squad that is 18 to 24 months ahead of them. And they're constantly curating that group of kind of mentor founders that are slightly ahead to have the right set of skills that they need to learn all the time. And part of the reason it's at 18 to 24 months ahead is because, you know, founders who are like from 10 years ago, their knowledge has expired. There's a shelf life to founder knowledge. So you need someone kind of recent. And so they really curate and nurture that group. And another thing that they also do is adopting a mentality of, I don't know everything, but here is what I do know. Founders have to both seem confident and be vulnerable enough to absorb new information and treat every experience as a learning opportunity. So the other place I see founders get into trouble with like being able to learn really fast is when they're too hard towards either the confidence side, like I know everything, or, or too much on the vulnerability side, like I have no idea what's going on. There's that balance. Very cool. And would you say just as, as founders or or folks listening who are building, thinking about who those mentors or or that or that posse could be, 
would you recommend that being within the, the same ecosystem? So do you go and look for people who are 18 months ahead of you also building vertical SaaS, or do you go find people who have also raised from people that are similar to your investors? Like, how do, how do you think about building that posse? The founders I've spoken to say it's great to have a mix. Some people in your industry, and probably they have more people outside their industry than in, just because obviously like the competitive nature of something that's a little bit too close, maybe vertical SaaS would be fine. It could be from different industries, but you know, if it's like beauty and it's a specific type of facial concealer, like they're probably your competitor. So you have to tread lightly. Careful. Yeah. (laughs) Love it. I want to pivot a little bit to spend time. You you sort of alluded to the one piece of many that you've written, and we're, we're going to talk a little bit about kind of how you've built your personal brand, but you wrote a fantastic piece on your ed tech preview and kind of what you're seeing upcoming in, in 2021 in terms of the ed tech ecosystem. I'm curious if there's anything you'd like to shed light on and, and just maybe give us a little bit of the summary of that post and some of your findings. Yeah, for 2021, one of the areas, I wrote about five areas that I'm very interested in. And one of the areas is around social and community-driven learning experiences in the education field. I think that we've had so many missed opportunities for really, truly social and community-driven learning outside of cohort-based education. So cohort-based education being things like you know, school, everyone starts at the same time, you're in a glass, that's inherently community driven. But if you think about a lot of the largest education companies that have gone public over the last couple of years, a lot of them are kind of single player experiences. And even if they haven't gone public, they're really highly valued ones. If you think about like Coursera or Udemy or Pluralsight, you know, those are asynchronous single player experiences where you're learning about a subject and upskilling. But there's no reason why they shouldn't, in my mind, have you know a social layer on top where you can interact with anybody who's also learning Calculus One at the same time, or anyone who's also learning, I don't know, basket weaving. People always say, you know, whatever subject people are are learning on there. I think if you think the same thing about MasterClass, Netflix, Wikipedia, there's all of these really great content resources out there that exist that we spend a lot of time on, but we aren't often connected to someone who could be helping us in our learning journey. There's a couple of companies that are doing this really well today, a couple of language learning companies like Busu, other ones that are doing a good job, but I think we're still a far ways away from where I'd like us to be. That's really interesting. Maybe let's let's pivot outside of, of ed tech and just curious if there's a name or two in the Lightspeed portfolio that you're super excited about that might not be getting the TechCrunch coverage or the Forbes coverage, but that you think is doing really interesting things. Well, I, of course, have to shout out companies in my portfolio. So I've invested in a couple of ed tech and uh, fintech companies as well as consumer companies. And on the ed tech side, one of the companies I invested in last year is a company called Forage which we did the series A in the summer of 2020. And they are a career discovery network where employers create courses about what it's like to work at that employer. So as opposed to say Udemy or Pluralsight or the other, these Coursera, these other large education companies where a third party is creating the content about what people need to skill up on. This is the actual employer telling you, no, this is the task. This is the assignment that we do at our job, which is so cool because, you know, all of those other programs, General Assembly, where I've worked, 
you know, you have to add on a finishing component where depending on where the student is interviewing, okay, this is how you do it for them. This is how you do it for them. And I think just getting the information straight from the source is, is incredible. Forage hit 1 million students just last year that took their program. They're going to have obviously a few more, a few million more this year. So they're really growing fast. And I can't speak highly enough of them. OutSchool is another one we invested in. They're a K through 12 live online marketplace. And they saved so many parents during the pandemic. I mean, they really became a trusted and needed resource for parents when school was Zoom last year and just wasn't necessarily hitting the bar that it used to. So we did their Series B last summer and they've just continued to grow a ton since then as well. And then we're also investors in FlockJ, which is a sales training bootcamp that helps people go from you know, often average making about 30K per year ahead of time to being a tech sales rep that's now making on average 60 or 70K per year. So it's really transformational companies. And the fintech ones, can't name them quite yet. We're announcing both of the fintechs I did in the next few weeks. Well, I'll keep an eye out for those. Um, curious, just as, as you think about all these different platforms, there's there's, there's almost too many ways to get skilled right now. If, if you're someone, if you're an undergraduate student or you just came out and you're not sure what you want to do. I'm curious if you have any advice for folks that are trying to get upskilled, but not necessarily sure where to start, kind of how to think about the different platforms, if you bucket them in your head or, or just sort of how you think about the ecosystem. Yeah, I think of the ecosystem, especially from an adult you know, learning standpoint, of in the career journey of a individual. So as millennials we're, and Gen Z, we're going through many more career changes than we, our parents' generation did. They said, we're gonna have on average five different careers you know, over our lifetime. I think I'm already on my third. I did corporate finance, I did startups, and now I'm in venture capital. So I'm in my third very different career. And I'm sure I'll be probably in more by the time I retire. And so I think that there is, uh, you know, constantly this need to go through a couple of steps. You have to first discover what you're interested in. Then you have to go train for it. You have to learn what are the skills for the area I'm now interested. Then you have to go and actually interview. And that's, there's a whole area around hiring and, and how to get the job. Then you got to perform well at the job. And finally, you have to, once you transition out, you know, figure out outplacement and transition and how to codify everything you did in that last career or that last job and then do it all over again. And so when I look across the landscape, I think that we have a lot of solutions in EdTech that have been built for the learning portion. Like a lot of them are the reskilling upskilling companies, but very few that have been built for career discovery it's a huge problem. A lot of people lose their jobs and then they have no idea what to do next. And we also have a lot of companies that have been like hiring tools and, you know, video hiring software. I think we have a good amount of companies in the performance category as well. I think of some of the sales enablement tools like Gong or even Salesforce is falling into that category. They help you do your job better. But the other area where we have a lack of companies is in the outplacement and the transition. Now that you've left this career, it's really the bookends, like how to wrap it all back around. Guild Education is starting to do some really interesting things in the outplacement field with their, with their new product. But those two on the end, we need a lot more solutions. It's really interesting. Let's pivot a little bit. I want to talk about You've just done a ton of work in 
we, we both have, and I've had the privilege to sort of watch you and, and work alongside you to help people of color and underrepresented minorities across the nation, not only in the tech ecosystem, but in the venture ecosystem as well, kind of, kind of get their footing. You know, George Floyd was killed almost a year ago now, and it, it's crazy to think that certainly a lot has been done, but we still have a lot of work to do. You know, what are, what are some of the barriers and roadblocks that you think still exist for people uh, of color in the tech and VC industry? And, and what are maybe some of the things that you're hoping to see still get improved over the next year or two? I personally think the biggest barrier in the VC industry is the diversity of the investors themselves, because so much research shows that if you just have more diverse investors that ideally would match the population, which I don't think anyone's asking for more than population parity, you know, that you would have more diverse founders being funded. And the abysmal stats of having, you know, 1%, 2% of all and VC investors being Black or Latinx is reflected in the data showing that even less than that of the founders receive that funding. And so, you know, at Lightspeed, you're, you're a scout with us. And what we've done here, you know, at Lightspeed is we started a scout program before the George Floyd stuff. We had it going for several years. And last year we had it more dedicated towards underrepresented investors because I'm a really big believer in the multiplier effect of more diverse investors, more diverse founders. And we've seen that playing out in the data. I mean, the first 30 investments or so from the class, over 50% of the founders were from racially underrepresented groups in tech. And so we're talking Black, Latinx, Pacific Islander, Indigenous, Native American. And that's just really, really exciting for me to, to see. And, you know, I think a I do really love all of the programs that are, you know, funds that are dedicated towards investing in diverse founders. My only fear is whether, you know, we saw so much activity after George Floyd last year, whether that will continue for many more years. I think a more permanent solution, which is not as always permanent, you have to have the right culture of equity and inclusion, but potentially a more permanent solution is getting those diverse investors in place because on average their tenure and their career is probably going to be at least several years at the company, whereas we don't know if they'll renew those funds for a second year. I'll quickly give a shout out to Barry Eggers and Jeremy Liu and the, the whole Lightspeed team that put together an incredible scout vehicle. We're still in inning, you know, call it two, call it three, but I'm just so excited to see some of the companies that, that are coming through there and, and that will continue to, to raise capital and hopefully continue to be supported by Lightspeed. Let's, let's stay in the venture ecosystem a little bit. Curious if there's ways that you've seen different funds sort of work on building more diverse representation, if, if there's best practices that you've seen for managers or even for younger folks in the venture ecosystem who you know, want to do things who consider themselves an ally, but aren't sure exactly how to build the pipeline of underrepresented founders. The good thing is that they don't have to work too hard to figure it out. I think there's so many organizations these days like Black VC and Dev Color and Takeoff Institute and TXO Opportunity Fund. There's so many good ones that it's really not that difficult to find these intermediary organizations. There's all these programs where you can tap really wonderful talent and get them excited about venture or get them excited about startups and entrepreneurship. So I think that's the first place to start. 
A second part though is, and that's on the outreach, but a second part though on more adapting your internal culture and making it a hospitable place for people to be, I really think you're going to need the most senior leadership of the firm at the most senior levels being adamantly committed to changing the generational landscape of what their internal team looks like. I know that's something that's happened at Lightspeed and they've been very adamant. We have like 10 women investors now out of 30 investors. And so I think that's something where you just have to be committed to it at the highest level and make sure that those most senior partners spend a lot of time mentoring the folks that come in because you can fall into a trap where people come in and, and churn really quickly if they don't feel supported. And we all know VC are not the best, VCs are not the best managers. And so I think people have to go additionally out of their way to make these new people feel comfortable. Yeah, Lightspeed has been super intentional on this and it's it's shown and I, th I think the results are, are proving themselves and um, big fan of the platform, obviously, as you know, let's let's transition a little bit to career advice. You know, we, we're lucky to have a, a fairly young listener base here on, on, on the podcast. And I, I'd love to just go back a little bit to uh, a point you made around, you know, your 16 year old, your old self one, one time in, in one of your tweets, I think you said, you know, getting over the fear of networking is, is one of the things that you wish you had done at a much earlier point. I know there's people much older than 16 that are still struggling with, with the fear of networking. And so would love to just hear a little bit of your advice around how to do that, how to get over it. What are, what are some of the first steps you can do to, to really get started on that path? Yeah, I used to hate networking. I mean, like deathly, didn't even see the point in it. I mean, when I was a kid, I was the type of person you went over, your mom or dad took you over to someone's house. And I just was like, where is the place I can read a book in your house? I would just go find a corner and not be seen for another, you know, six hours. And so then coming to, you know, high school and college, really college, I think is where I started realizing, oh, there's people around me who are doing this and it seems to be helping them get jobs and helping them move forward with their career. And, and like I said in the tweet, you know, I really had to reframe it in my mind as it isn't this icky thing where it's transactional because I thought it was just transactional and, 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 and clearly, I think when you're thinking that way, you're definitely not doing it right. But when I reframed as, okay, I'm interested in a lot of topics. I read a lot. So therefore I have things at least I'm interested about, you know, let me go talk to this person to see if this is something they're also interested in. And it can feel very contrived in the beginning, but I mean, just even talking about what's happening in the world and that, that week can be something of interest. I was in college really interested in the intersection of, of Africa and China and how they were trading together. And I was also really interested in behavioral economics and what was going on in the, the housing crisis. So I just started going up to people at career fairs and networking events and talking about it because, oh, well, hopefully this will be better than asking them, you know, what did, what, what do people do at your firm and what's a day in the life like, you know, like, and I actually got a much better response once I started asking people about topics and sharing my convert, my perspective. So I think if you can find that way to make it authentic, something that you are interested in, just go up and ask people. It's much less awkward than asking what they do from 9am to 6pm. I love that. Last one for you, Mercedes. This has been incredible. I really appreciate you joining us. I want to talk about a little bit about building a personal brand. It, it's something that I, 
I personally look up to you in, in doing and, and certainly know that a lot of other people do as well. You've, you've built an incredible brand and, and presence, not only in the venture ecosystem, but, but your personal brand as an operator as well. And so I'm, I'm curious if you have any advice for folks that are just getting started, you know, how, how to think about building a personal brand. What are some of the early things you can do to, to figure out kind of where your brand resonates and, and how you should think about going at it, whether it's building a podcast, writing a blog, sending, you know, sending things out to friends, just, just some of the things that you think folks who are just getting started could, could think about. That's so sweet of you to say. So I appreciate that. I, I, I think that in terms of brand building, and this was another thing that I thought was very icky and like distasteful and avoided like the plague, even as recently as a few years ago. I, I think that now I see the benefit of it, how it helps me get in front of startups, how it helps me win deals. So I, I try to do it more intentionally now. And I think that one of the first insights I had was that you have to choose mediums that are more authentic and very comfortable for you. So there's a lot of ways to brand build. You mentioned podcast or blogging, there's speaking on panels, there's I mean, nowadays there's Clubhouse, you can go speak, you know, on audio. And I think there's social media, there's so many. And I realized that I've always enjoyed reading and writing. I talked a bit about how I was like that introvert kid who was always reading and writing for me. I've, I've always enjoyed it as a process that really helps me think and helps me process what has, I think I know, because when you write something down, you figure out whether you actually know it or not very quickly. And I think of it as almost like teaching, which I'm a big education nerd. So I love thinking about, okay, well, this is how I can teach my perspective on this topic. And for me, that's a strong medium. I've been using, I've been writing a blog since 2013. I have a very low inhibition level when it comes to posting. And I think that's another key ingredient is I'm not really nervous about people thinking I'm dumb. Of course, there's going to be a rebuttal or an inaccuracy in like literally everything I post. So I don't really worry that, about that too much. I just put it out there and then I get a big sense of accomplishment of like having finalized some thoughts and like really worked through it mentally. But the same, I could not say the same for speaking. Like speaking is one I've tried really hard to get a lot better at because I trip over my words all the time. I have to write because my head, the thoughts in my head are not that clear. They're a little bit jumbled. And so speaking is like on the fly, like it's tough for me. And I've had mentors who've said things like you need to do a lot more of panels. You need to do a lot more of, you know, even solo speaking events where you, the whole focus is on you because that is the area you need to get better at. And I have other partners on my team who they feel they are poor at writing, but that they're really strong at verbal and so they only do speaking so i really think you have to find your lane and then stick to it really cool well really appreciate you being here mercedes tell people how they can follow you and, and follow some of your work you can find me at mercebent m-e-r-c-e-b-e-n-t for twitter and instagram and i my blog is mercedesbent.co or i write on um, medium as well so find me there please don't send me any linkedin messages i stopped checking it a while ago and email is the other best place to to find me my email is on our our lightspeed website fantastic uh, mercedes Bent partner at lightspeed venture partners thank you so much for joining us Thanks for having me. This was really fun. Of course. Take care.